perhaps the most astounding words that we might say in worship today are the words with which we will begin this prayer. Our Father. For us to be able to come into your presence as the transcendent King, the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of all mankind, the One who is sovereign and omnipotent, the One who is omniscient and all-wise, the One who is in need of nothing and no one, who is fully self-satisfied in His Trinitarian relationship, the One who is abundant in grace and loving kindness. This One, who is above all, has invited us to call, uh, call Him our Father. And so we come appealing to You, our Father, this morning, that You would transform us in our worship, give us delight in You, Give us such a delight in you that our lives are transformed. It changes the way we live. That it would free us from the bondage of sin. That it would free us from enticement to sin. That, that because of our view of you, that our understanding and comprehension and enticement to sin would be diminished and even, Lord, vanquished. Oh, Father, would you change our lives as we contemplate this morning our great King, Jesus Christ, and His Father, you, the transcendent Holy One. We commend our worship to you. I ask that you would give me clarity, discernment, accuracy, and that you would give all of us transformed hearts. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. King George VI ruled over Great Britain for about 15 years in the early part of the 20th century before he died in 1952 from coronary thrombosis. He was an immensely popular king. He was considered to be a king of the people with little pretense. He was tremendously popular and his wife, Queen Elizabeth, also was popular. Yet as popular as she was when George, who was also affectionately known as Bertie, died, she took a back seat when her daughter, also named Elizabeth, ascended to the throne of Great Britain. Elizabeth the Younger, became the ruling monarch in England. And the woman who had been the Queen of England simply became the Queen Mother. The Queen's Mother seemed to be, at least from these American eyes, a nice lady. She died at the age of 100 in the year 2002. But when her husband was king and later when her daughter was queen, she had no official power, though she, for a time, carried the title Queen of England. 
I'm sure she had ability at times to persuade both her husband and later her daughter about particular things that were of importance to her. And undoubtedly, it would have been able to be, it would have been fun to be able to say on occasion, I met the queen's mother, the queen mum, as she is known in England. She carried a lot of different titles. Commandant-in-Chief of the Army and Air Force Women's Services, President of the British Red Cross Society, Commandant-in-Chief of the Nursing Division of the St. John Ambulance Brigade, that's a mouthful, and a host of other titles. But she had no queenly power. In the passage that I want to draw your attention to this morning, King Jesus introduces us to his father. But please do not assume that the king's father in his position as monarch is anything like the British monarchy. They are not alike. The father of King Jesus is no powerless figurehead. As we come to this passage, it will be helpful for us to think about the regency of Jesus and how he relates to his father. Last week, we saw that Matthew makes a case in his gospel that Jesus is the king. He is the anointed Messiah that is coming to take the royal throne of David. He makes that assertion even from the beginning verse of the gospel, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The anointed one, the one that will come as king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he will make that assertion all the way through this book. Let me draw your attention to just one of about 80 different references to his kingship and his regency. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I will, as king of Israel, sit on the kingly throne of Israel. At the same time, we also need to understand that the Old Testament regularly speaks about the kingdom of God. There are more than 3,000 references in the Old Testament to the principles of king, kingdom, reign, and throne. We saw... Some of those this morning in Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O gates, that the king be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Just a couple of Psalms before that, Psalm 22, verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. So Jesus, excuse me, Jesus is king according to the New Testament, but the Old Testament also points to the regency of God, to the Father, and His supremacy over Israel and all mankind. In fact, it might be made a case that the greatest sin of Israel is the rejection of God as her king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The Old Testament references to the kingship of God overwhelmingly are about the Father's kingship. And so you've got this question, how can the father be king and the son be king at the same time? 
There is such a thing as a co-regency, but it is even slightly different than that. The Old Testament pictures God as the eternal king of a universal kingdom, which gives a, which, which the Old Testament gives evidence to as far back as Genesis chapter one. Now the word king and kingdom and reign and rule and throne isn't used in Genesis one, but the fact that God creates all things gives evidence to his regency, his authority, his kingly sovereignty. And so John MacArthur says of this universal kingdom of God, From before the beginning until after the end, from the beginning to the end, both in and beyond time and space, God appears as the ultimate king. God is central to and the core of all things eternal and temporal. So the first person of the Trinity serves as the eternal king. But in his kingship, He also establishes a mediatorial kingdom, a mediated kingdom on earth in which men rule. And the first ruler of that kingdom was a man named Adam. Perhaps you recognize his name. And his rulership went awry quickly. He's given authority in chapter 2 of Genesis and in chapter 3 he goes astray. And that was the pattern for every earthly king that followed. And the rulers of Israel and the rulers in this world repeatedly, time after time, failed. Jesus, or excuse me, the Father established a kingdom for Israel after judges and authorities failed. Israel rejected God for being her king. So God established a rule over all of Israel and then later over divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, and established that they would rule his people. And yet those kings inevitably failed. It's, it's just a long litany of failure after failure. And even among the good kings of Judah, inevitably those who followed the good kings also failed. And so we find this promise in Second Samuel chapter 7. Though there is failure in the kingdom, God promises David this. Second Samuel 7.16 Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There is going to come a king who will rule in this mediated kingdom, who will rule for eternity from that kingdom. That king is our Savior Jesus. And so he comes in Matthew chapter 4, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. From that time, 417, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This universal kingdom on which God the Father reigns and rules and has been mediated on this earth. Now the one who will rule and reign forever is here. Do you want him as king? And the great 
sin of Israel again was not just to reject God the Father as the first king in Samuel, but then to reject Christ as the mediated king in Matthew chapter 12. But he will, my brothers and sisters, be installed as king on that kingdom one day. Matthew 25:31 Jesus says when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne You're allowed to say amen He will sit on that throne in his millennial kingdom and that will transition into God's eternal kingdom And listen to this from the last chapter of the scriptures. Then he showed me a river, Revelation 22.1, of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The universal king, the Father, will rule with His Son in the Son's mediated kingdom. Father and Son, two eternal co-regents. And so as we look at our Savior, we must have in mind that He is the authoritative King, and He is the authoritative Sovereign, and He has a Father of the same Reigning, ruling, kingdom authority as Him. Not only is the Father the King's Father, but He is the eternal King of an eternal kingdom. And so our goal this morning is to introduce you to the King's Father. And I want to take you to a passage that I know is familiar to you for that introduction. In fact, it's a passage that is well-known culturally, even among unbelievers. They know this scripture. And I want you to see the father of the king, the king of kings, in a new light. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, our Savior introduces us to his father this way. Our king's father is both transcendent and personal. He is above all things. He is beyond all things. He is more magnificent than anything. He is more glorious than all things. And yet, He is intensely personal and available to us. In this familiar passage, King Jesus reveals six characteristics of His Father, the Eternal King. Six characteristics of his father, the eternal king. These characteristics serve to reveal to us what the eternal king of heaven is like, but these qualities also demonstrate the work of God on our behalf. What the king's father does for his subjects. Our king's father is both transcendent and personal. What is this king like? Watch this. Our king's father is our Father. Our King's Father is our Father. When Jesus commanded His followers to begin their prayers as He instructed them in how to pray, 
with the words, Our Father. He was inaugurating a new and astoundingly radical understanding of God. In the Old Testament, the primary way that the readers of the Old Testament understood God was with the name Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is, he is the one who is above all. He is the one that is sovereign. He is the one that creates covenants. He is the one who is dependent on no one or anything. He is the self-existent one. He is the eternally existent one. He is the holy one. He is, in some sense, as he revealed to Moses, the one who is unapproachable because no one can see his face and live, he tells him in Exodus 33. The Israelites were so afraid of taking the name of the Lord in vain that they refused to pronounce this name. Instead, when the name Yahweh showed up in the Old Testament, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai, Lord. And this God, who is so transcendent, Jesus now, in the minds of the hearers, certainly of the Pharisees, has the brashness To call him father. It was astounding. It was blasphemous. We know that from other passages. John 10 among them. That the Pharisees considered it blasphemy. For Jesus to call God father. But he goes way beyond that here. He even calls him. Our father. In the Old Testament. There are less than 10 references to God. As father. And yet in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as his father over 70 times. He is absolutely turning his hearer's understanding of deity on its head. And again, Jesus is affirming the reality that not only is God his father, but he is the father of all who belong to him. In fact, did you notice it? Even as we read this passage, verse 1 You have no reward with your father. Verse 4. So that your giving is in secret and your father, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6. Your father who is in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret. Verse 8. Do not be like them, the Gentiles, for your father, your father, your father, your father. It's not just belonging to to Jesus. He belongs to us. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, we have access to the intimate, infinite, holy, omnipotent, wise King of all things. And when you pray, you have access to Him not only as regent and king and sovereign and transcendent, you have access to Him as Father. He is your father. Points to family relationship. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been identified with him as his children. Just a side note. That's not true of all people, is it? It's only for those who are rightly related to God and been adopted into his family that they, they believe in Jesus Christ as their savior. They have repented of sin and trusted in Him for their salvation, that they can come to Him with a perfection that is not belonging to them. 
In fact, if you're going to come to God and you want to be like God, Jesus tells us what the standard is. If you want to access God on your own, the standard, just go up a few verses from this, 548. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you want access to God, you have to be absolutely perfect, no blemish whatsoever. Nothing. Not one sin, not one time at any place in your life. And not only not any overt sin, but any thought of sin, any desire for sin, any attraction to sin. Nothing. And that lets us all out from the first point of our consciousness. Because we've all sinned. That's the standard. So how do we get in? Jesus says, truly I say to you, 518, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the law shall pass away until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't get there on your own. But I am fulfilling this law. And if you trust in me, my righteousness will be imputed to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be righteousness on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He gets our sin we get His righteousness. And brother and sister, friend, if you're watching online or if you're here in person, if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, if He is not your groom, if He is not your friend, if He is not your confidant, if you have not repented of your sin, if you're still trusting in your own righteousness to get you into heaven, you have no hope unless you believe in Him. And then if you believe in Him, You're adopted into his family and you can go to God as your father. And coming to him as our father, we understand that we are loved and we are wanted. He desires our fellowship. It seems in my mind to be like a couple of months ago. But it's decades ago now when my children were in their early years. And I remember when they were three, four, five, six, seven years old. And my wife might come up to the church and um, be up here to do something, perhaps just to drop in and say hi. I could hear them as soon as that front door opened. And they'd come running down the hallway And they'd come ripping around the corner and they'd bang the door open. And then they'd bang my inner door open. Daddy! Now I'm pretty careful about scheduling my time and making sure that I have appointments set. My children always have access. They have access to everything in my life. They can jump on me when I'm taking a nap. And they did that. They can call in the middle of the night. And they've done that. They can even use my toolbox. Even if they don't put the tools back. But don't do that. (laughs) They have access. 
Brothers and sisters, this is our invitation to the King who's our Father. We have access to Him. Where does this King live? You notice that? Our Father who is in heaven. When He says our Father who is in heaven, He doesn't mean He's in heaven like Where's the zip code where God lives? Well, it's zero, 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 zero. Or infinite, 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 whatever that looks like. He's not talking about zip code. Probably most of us in this room have loved ones who are in heaven, who are in glory, at the throne of God. And they don't have an ability to do for us what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about location. He's not talking about spatial relationship. He is talking to position in heaven as the authority of heaven. He is the one who is transcendent. We might say the one who is above all of this mess on earth and sovereign over it. He is the one to whom we have access. We have access to the master and the king, the one who is in the exalted position. Our Father is capable of meeting our needs and we go to Him because of that exalted position. Our Father and our King is no longer our enemy, but He is now our Father. And we have no reason to fear Him. We have a bold, we have a relationship with Him where we can go to Him boldly as the Father and the King, knowing that He will always give us His best. This King of eternity is the Father to whom we have bold access. Says one commentator, we come now knowing full well that we shall be met with compassion and kindness, understanding and affection. This reassures our hearts, it sets our minds at ease, it frees our spirits and releases us into a deep delight in our dealings with our Heavenly Father. How good to know here is someone who really understands, who knows all about us and who, even though he knows the worst, still loves us. This explains why we can come to him in any situation and find a warm welcome. Our king's father is our father. Second characteristic Of the king's father, our king's father is our holy one. As we come to pray to him, Jesus says that the first aspect of our prayer is to acknowledge his holiness. Hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed or holy means to sanctify or to set apart. It's used typically of believers in Jesus Christ. That that is what we are now able to do because we are followers of Jesus Christ. Be holy and that is what we ought to pursue to be holy even as God is holy. But God also is uniquely holy, sanctified, set apart, different. And Christ's instruction for our praying demonstrates that we are particularly to recognize His holiness and His transcendence in His holiness. Now when we pray this, When we say, hallowed be your name, we're not asking God, we want you to become holy. He is holy. He's eternally holy. He is infinitely holy and he cannot be made more holy. So 
So what then is this prayer? What then is this desire? Hallowed be thy name. God's holiness, says one writer, is a fundamental statement of who God is and what he is like. Holiness in God is everything that sets him apart from the sinful creation, and it is everything that elevates him above moral splendor. It is absence of any evil, and it is the fullness of all purity. So this request is not simply to say, God, would you become that? But it is to esteem him and honor him and exalt him for what he is. Calvin said that to hallow God's name is to desire that God has the honor that is due him. That men should never think or speak of him without the greatest veneration. So this prayer tells us that the universal king, the king of our king, is not only our father, but he is also holy. And he is to be addressed in that way. We have access to the king because he is father and we can make requests with boldness because Christ, his eternal son, is also our great high priest and our intercessor. But we also come with humility, honoring and exalting and seeking the glory of God in all of his fullness. That means we do not approach him flippantly. We do not come to him with an easy laid back attitude. We come with dignity and honor fitting of his infinite holiness, even while we come confidently knowing that he invites us to come to him. We also approach him in this way, understanding that because he is holy, he is able to impute his son's righteousness to us so that we also can be called holy. It's astounding. You read the New Testament and you see people in churches that are blemished, stained, struggling. And the writers consistently call them saints. The saints in Ephesus, the saints in Galatia, the saints in Corinth. Saints, Corinth? Paul, did you read your letter? Oh, yeah, he did. They're saints and holy ones, not on their own basis, but on the imputed righteousness and holiness of Christ. They get the holiness from God. Our God is our holy one, meaning he alone is holy and we get our holiness from him. Our king's father is our holy one. Thirdly, notice this. Our king's father is sovereign. Jesus says in verse 10, there we are to pray your kingdom come. That's a prayer to anticipate the end of the age when Jesus will rule on David's throne as was promised in Second Samuel chapter 7 as Jesus himself promised as the coming Messiah all through the book of Matthew and the Gospels. It is to pray the same thing as the Apostle John prays at the very end of his last letter, Revelation 22. Come, Lord Jesus, come today. To desire this kingdom is to desire God's final judgment on sin, 
God's final judgment on sinners and to be finally and fully freed from the sin that entangles and ensnares us. But there's also a sense in which when Jesus advocates that we are to pray your kingdom come, there is a sense in which we're also saying, Lord, we want, we want evidence of your kingdom now. We want the Lord to demonstrate His sovereignty by bringing people into salvation, to, to drawing them into His kingdom, to, to making them His children, His beloved ones, His servants, His slaves, and the ones who are in subjection to Him. When we pray this, we are praying we want those who are believers to live sanctified lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We want Christ to be honored as King now, And in His future kingdom. Christ our King and God, the universal King, is a sovereign King who will reign at the end of time. And He is also a sovereign King who reigns now. Hear me. There is not a thing in this world that does not belong to Him and over which He does not have authority. There are no renegade husbands over which God does not have authority. There are no renegade wives over which God does not have authority. There are no renegade politicians, believe it or not. But every king on every throne in this world is in subjection to and under the sovereign authority of God the King in heaven. There is no renegade molecule in this world. There is nothing, Abraham Kuyper said, over which God cannot say, Mine! It's all His. And if it is His, all allegiance is due Him. To say, Your kingdom come, is to say, I want subjection to you. I want subjection to you in the final kingdom and I want subjection to you now. I think that is in fact what Jesus is inferring in the next phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done. His will is his sovereignty. And when we think about the will of God, there are two distinct kinds of wills. One is His decreed will, His sovereignty over history and His sovereignty over all things, which typically we understand only in hindsight. We don't know ahead of time. Moses says it this way, Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There there are things that God has decreed and and established and is sovereign over that are secret only to Him. Only He knows. And we come to know those things only as time unfolds. That's His decreed will. And He also has a preceptive will. That is His precepts. His commands. That's what's revealed in this book. Again, same verse. Moses refers to that. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, 
that we may observe all the words of this law. What belongs to us, the sovereign will, the decreed will doesn't belong to us, but the preceptive will, the, de- the revealed will in this book does belong to us. I think what in part Jesus is praying in Matthew chapter 6 is not just, God, I want your sovereign will to be done. Certainly that's part of it. But I think also he is asking for the revealed will in God's word to be obeyed. That part of our prayer needs to be, God, would you help us to obey what you have revealed to us to do? Amy Carmichael articulated this request this way. And shall I pray to change thy will, my father, until it accord to mine? But no, Lord, no, that shall never be. Rather, I pray, I pray thee, bend my human will with thine or to thine. Bend me to you. Change my will to do what your will has commanded. Thy will be done recognizes that God has right and authority to demand our allegiance. So seeking the coming of Christ's kingdom and to have his will done on earth means because I know you are king, I want to submit to your will. I want to be obedient to you. To come to the father who is sovereign king is not to say, Hey, Dad, you got a great cool car because you own everything there is to own. Can I have the keys to the key this weekend? To come to the sovereign king of the universe is to say, you have everything. Give me what I need and make me to be obedient to you. Because what I want is your will and not mine. Our father's, or excuse me, our king's father is our Father. He is our Holy One. He is our Sovereign. Fourthly, He is our Provider. Give us this day, verse 11, our daily bread. To give us this day our daily bread is reminiscent of God's provision of manna in the wilderness for the Israelites. And the provision of that manna in Israel was to meet a physiological need for sure. So that while they're traveling around and they can't plant crops and they can't harvest crops and they can't make bread, that they have something to eat. But there was something else that was going on in God's provision of the manna in the wilderness besides just physiological provision. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 2, you shall remember the way that the Lord your God led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, he humbled you and he let you be hungry and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you to understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from out of the mouth of the Lord. He tested them. Do you want the manna? Or do you want me? And do you trust me? 
to provide the manna and everything else that you will need. Verse 16, the same chapter. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, my power and my strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It's a test. Do you trust him? And we come asking for the same thing God, would you give us the daily bread? Would you give us what I need today? Every day we ask Him, will you give me what I need today? For our most mundane needs, will you provide? And it's really a test. Am I trusting myself? Or am I trusting Him? It's not a selfish prayer. Notice what he says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us bread that will feed me so that I might in turn feed others. Give me bread and give bread to others alongside me that all of us will have our needs met, that we will all trust in you. And watch this. What is so remarkable about this request is that every earthly king seeks provision from their people through taxation. Romans 13 says that's appropriate. We ought to support the king. But the king survives on the basis of what the people provide. And Jesus turns that on its head. That the people survive on the basis of what the king provides. And there is no limit to the stores in his treasury. And he loves for his subjects to come to him and say, Can you open your treasury and provide me what I need? Because I trust you to give me what I need. O King, Eternal, and Father. Says John Piper, Here is a great discovery. We do not glorify God by providing His needs, but by praying that He would provide ours and trusting Him to answer. Our King's Father is our provider. It just keeps getting better. Our king's father is our forgiver. Notice verse 12. And so Paul, excuse me, I've been way too long in Romans. Jesus is connecting verse 11 to verse 12 in the same way that you pray for daily physical provision. Pray for spiritual provision for the pardoning of your sin. While you have great need. To meet your daily needs, you have a greater need to meet your spiritual need. The greatest need you have is your spiritual problem, which is sin. And our King Jesus says we have access to His Father to ask for forgiveness. As we think about 
that word forgiveness when he says, forgive us our debts. There are two kinds of debts that need forgiven forgiveness. There is a judicial forgiveness. This is the forgiveness that provides salvation for us. It is, it is the wiping away of all of our sin debt from, from our first moment of sin into as far as we can go in sinning. Every sin, past, present, future, it wipes it away and God declares us to be righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ. That's judicial forgiveness. That is the legal act of the king to declare us to be righteous. There's also a paternal or familial forgiveness. This is the forgiveness that restores fellowship and relationship between fathers and sons. This is the forgiveness of 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to cleanse us and to forgive us from every unrighteousness. That's not salvation forgiveness in that verse. That's the forgiveness that comes after we have become believers and we have offended our God. We've, we've operated out of the flesh. And when we go to Him in that circumstance, our fellowship with Him has been broken and He wipes it clean as the Father restoring us to fellowship. And our great confidence is this, that as much as we confess our sins, the Father and the King will forgive us our sins. In conjunction with that, Jesus calls us to do something else. Verse 14, if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This does not mean that we forgive others to get forgiveness from God, but we forgive others because we have been forgiven by God. We don't have time to go there, but you might jot in the margin, Matthew eighteen twenty-one to 35. That's the, the parable of the two debtors. And Jesus' point in that parable is simply this, that it is incongruous for God, for God's, for, for those who have received God's forgiveness to not forgive others as well. Because God forgives us, because we go to Him and we seek His forgiveness, and He always grants that, we also always grant forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. Augustine called verses 14 and 15, quote, the terrible petition. Because if we don't forgive others, we're really asking God not to forgive us. So we pray for forgiveness as much as we need. And the king who is a father forgives. It is humbling to make a request of someone who has great authority. Sometimes it's hard to go to your boss or perhaps the owner of your company and make a special request of them. If you're a child, sometimes it can be hard to go to a parent and Ask for a favor from your parent or to ask forgiveness. It's daunting to go to a political official or stand before a judge in a court and ask for a favor, to ask for a remission of a debt. And if that is true on this earth, my brothers and sisters, it is a terrifying thing to stand before the King of Kings and confess sin. And ask if he will forgive. We will never 
find him to be resistant to forgiving us when we come and ask in humility. He will always forgive. He is ever ready to forgive. That's affirmed throughout the scriptures. Think about our king on the cross. Luke 23. When they came to the place called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying. Father. Forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. That wasn't a granting of forgiveness. That was a making available forgiveness. And Jesus is saying to the universal king, his father. If those who are crucifying me in this moment come to you and seek forgiveness, forgive them. If forgiveness could have been granted to those who nailed our Savior to the cross, we can say with full confidence, God is ever ready to forgive everything. you just got to come and ask. Our King's Father is our forgiver. One last principle. Our King's Father is our protector. Verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here, instead of asking for forgiveness, Christ advocates that we ask for protection from the sin before the sin is indulged. When he says, do not lead us into temptation, he's not saying that God is the kind of God who entices us to sin But he is simply using a negative to express a positive request. So, for instance, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I will not cast any man out, which which certainly means I will keep. And so here, when he says, do not lead, it means something like keep me away from or lead me away from temptation. Deliver me from evil means rescue me from evil. All sorts of evil. And in fact, the text says not just deliver us from evil, but from the evil. It could be the evil that particularly entangles me. It could be, I'm not advocating this wholeheartedly, but it certainly could be that he is saying deliver us from the evil one, Satan. That he might not have any kind of sway in our lives to lead us astray. So the request is, keep us from wandering into paths where we will be tempted. Keep us from wandering into the clutches of the evil one. And the joy of our salvation is that because we have been freed from the penalty of sin, we've also been freed from the power of sin. We don't have to sin Yet we still feel that pull of the flesh, don't we? We 
haven't been fully redeemed. And so there's this enticement to go back to the flesh. And Jesus is saying, you have a father and a king who will help you when you're enticed to go astray. Again, recognize that this request is being made of the king. The king, the eternal, the sovereign of creation, history, heaven and earth and redemption serves as a guide and a scout, a protector going on ahead of us and saying, here's the pathway, follow me. You go this direction, you follow my lead and you'll stay out of the weeds of sin and temptation. That's our king. That's our father. In 1952, King George VI died, was succeeded on the British throne by Queen Elizabeth, his daughter. Not his wife, Elizabeth, but his daughter, Elizabeth. About a year and a half after he died, he died in February of 52. In June of 1953, she put on the historic coronation crown at her formal recognition of her kingship. She put on that crown. It's not the kind of thing you would wear around on a day going shopping. It weighs five pounds. And all of the stones on it, they think, they estimate, is valued at about four and a half million dollars. Not something you wear at Kroger. Here's a remarkable thing about that crown. It's the coronation crown. It was created in 1661. There had been a coronation crown that every king in England had used between the 11th century and the middle of the 17th century. That crown was destroyed 1661. They made a new crown. Every king or queen of England that has sat on the throne has worn that crown at their coronation since that day, including Queen Elizabeth on June 2nd, 1953. And since that day, she has never worn that crown again. One day and never again. Now, you and I might make a trip to England and we might be able to see that crown on display with all of the other crown jewels. But if the Queen of England doesn't have access to that crown... Uh, you and I aren't going to get a chance to see how it fits. We have no access. Brothers and sisters, we have a great king, King Jesus. And both he and his father have regal power that infinitely transcends the power of Elizabeth and her mother or any other regal on earth. They are transcendent in their power, in their authority, And they are humble, personal, and accessible in their care of us and their provision for us. The king and his father eternally wear the coronation crown. And they invite us to come to him, our king and our father. What a great king we have, our father. This King Jesus, majestic, 
as we will find next time, authoritative, powerful, wise, coming. And he has a great father who is also king. And who is also not just his father, but our father. Might we find joy in coming to both Christ our King and His Father, our God and King in heaven. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.